0: This is BTS with CTV, behind the scenes, behind the stories we bring you from the CTV Vancouver newsroom. My name is Penny Daflos, and I'll be your guide Behind the Curtain, which has us talking about the ongoing struggle to publicize evidence that can have dramatic impacts on public policy, laws, and how we understand serious and even life-ending incidents. I want to start with our managing editor, Ethan Faber. Thanks for coming back on the pod.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Ethan set the stage for us because I think a lot of people think that we get routine access to exhibits uh, whether it's video or images or the things that can make a difference in a courtroom at a coroner's inquest people... I think, take for granted the fact that it's on TV or in their local newspaper, but the reality is it can be quite challenging for us to get access to this material, which is quite important.
1: Yeah, video and pictures from court proceedings or coroner's inquests um, are often uh, key to telling a story, and a lot of the journalism we do behind the scenes involves trying to get access to that material, Uh, and it's very, very complicated. You know, I always say that we don't have a bias as journalists, Um, but in fact, we actually do have a couple of biases. And one of them, you know, the more nobly described bias that we have is for the truth, but the other one um, that becomes one that we're putting into practice when we're trying to get access to this type of uh, exhibit, like a video or an important uh, piece of uh, evidence from a trial, is the public's right to know what's happening in the community. And so when we're talking about public... Uh, court proceedings or inquests, we believe that we actually can cross the line into advocating uh, for the public's right to access, and we can actually take on a role. Sometimes it's an adversarial role uh, with institutions uh, and other interested parties that don't want us to get that access. So, you know, they say we we have no bias and that we're always neutral. That's not always the case. Sometimes we actually fight uh, to get access to this material because it's so important sometimes, we believe, to telling a story.
0: And I think the most famous local example has to be the Jakansky video, because the RCMP was giving us a narrative at the time, and there was no way to say what did or didn't happen until that video came out. And it was one of the most compelling things, and it completely changed our discussion that we were having around that very sad case that has had widespread implications as a result of a single piece of video that was, what, 30 seconds long?
1: Everybody remembers Robert Jakansky and his death at the Vancouver airport uh, when he was tasered repeatedly by the RCMP. Everybody remembers the video. What people might not remember, but we did cover it, was the fight for the video, uh, which went on for uh, many days before the video was ever played. And the reason there was a fight... Uh, was because in that case, as is often the case, the RCMP fought against the public's right to know what happened. Sorry, but that's exactly what they did. They seized the video, which was shot by a gentleman at the airport on his personal camera. They seized it as evidence. And according to uh, the man, the witness who shot the video, he was told he would get his camera and his video back uh, once they'd copied it. They didn't give it back, they told him they needed it indefinitely and I don't know if people remember this, but the person who shot the video of Robert Jakansky dying had to go to court. he had to hire a lawyer and he had to sue the RCMP to give him back his camera and he won and when that happened, uh, he then shared it with the media and we put it on the news and Well, I guess history uh, tells us what happened next, which was we learned that everything we'd been told by the authorities about what happened was false. There was not a crowded airport. He um, was not threatening other passengers. Um, They said they couldn't pepper spray him because there was a a plane that had just uh, disembarked hundreds and hundreds of people and so they had no choice but to use the, the, the taser. None of that was true. And we could only find that out uh, by seeing the video of it happening. But again, it put us in a role of, of an adversarial role with an, with an institution, the law enforcement, as we advocated for the public's right to access. And so that was, a, that was a classic example and one that probably a lot of people remember. But that sort of challenge is something we face day in and day out. Um, as we try to tell stories, and people who may be uncomfortable with those stories being told uh, oppose us in our efforts to try to get these pieces of video and these pictures onto the air or onto our website.
0: I'd like to bring in reporter Maria Weisgarber now because you had an example at a coroner's inquest where you were trying to access uh, a video that was uh, available um, in for anybody who would have gone to this inquest to see it was a, a publicly available piece of evidence, but you had trouble accessing it. Explain uh, the nature of this case, Maria, and, and how you had trouble getting this video. Yes, this was a coroner's inquest
2: uh, into the death of a man named William Ryan Fisher. And he was someone who was convicted... Uh, in connection with an assault committed during the Stanley Cup riot in 2011, along with another man. And uh, the assault was on a person um, who was trying to uh, protect a downtown business. So he was sentenced in 2016 to three years in jail. And uh, at the time of that sentencing, uh, we had spoken to uh, a family member of his who indicated that Um, He had in the time since the riot tried to turn his life around, he'd become religious, Uh, he was intent on just serving his sentence and and moving on with his life, Uh, and the provincial court judge also found that while uh, Fisher had a drug and alcohol problem, He had been sober for the past two years. So this is all uh, prior to him heading uh, into custody to begin serving his sentence. He was taken initially to the North Fraser Pretrial Centre, which is a remand centre in Port Coquitlam. It's a high-security remand centre for men, um, which is a place where when people are uh, in custody, when they're waiting to go to trial, if they weren't granted bail, that's somewhere where they might be. And in his case, he had just been sentenced to a three-year sentence, which would have required time in a federal institution. Uh, So I I can only imagine that this was just uh, maybe a bit of a stopgap before he was transferred somewhere else. But we'll we'll never know now, uh, because what ended up happening was within a few days of being at North Fraser pretrial, he went into medical distress, uh, was taken to Royal Columbian Hospital in Westminster, where he ultimately died. Uh, so this inquest was into his death because it was an in-custody death in a provincial uh, correctional institution. Um, so I headed into this inquest, and I, I wasn't incredibly familiar with the original story, although I looked it up and read up as much as I could. And on the very first day of that inquest, uh, there were a couple things that stood out. Um, we heard from uh, correctional officers uh, who had been involved with him during his short stay at North Fraser. And we also watched a video. Uh, this video was from his cell in segregation, uh, it was played to the inquest, uh, to the jury, so that they could see it. And um, basically it showed some of the moments uh, that he went through in that cell during the portion
0: of the time he was in medical distress. It's a pretty disturbing video, too, if you watch it. There's no sound or anything, but it's you're seeing somebody having a really bad time. It's, it's very confusing, and you can understand why it would be a powerful piece of evidence in this inquest. Absolutely.
2: I mean, I personally found it very difficult to watch. I mean, you know, as his family had said to us previously, you know, he had made mistakes in his life, but to watch somebody uh, apparently experiencing this ex- extreme kind of distress, which later we found was attributed to consuming a large amount of MDMA in this highly secure monitored cell, um, it was difficult. Uh, his father was at the inquest. Uh, I spoke to him briefly outside, and it was very difficult for him, too. I'm not even sure that he was able to watch it uh, in the in the uh, courtroom. But it did show uh, some of the last moments and what happened to this man, William Fisher. And in particular, the, the period of time, uh, what unfolded from the time that he woke up early in the morning and he was struggling, he was getting up and falling down, he was flailing around the room, he fell off the top bunk in this segregation cell, which he was sharing with another cellmate. Uh, He did have another cellmate in there. Um, And then you just watch for the next roughly 10 minutes as he he struggles, he falls. He's clearly not looking well. uh, And eventually his... um, Cellmate pushes a call button on the wall, and within a couple minutes, correctional officers arrive and enter the room, and remove him from the room. Eventually, it was not long after that they testified that he basically became uh, unresponsive and then was um, given medical treatment. But in the end, he did not survive. But it, it was it was difficult to watch someone in that, and also the circumstances in that small space, uh, fully lit on video. Uh, struggling around that room and uh, it it was a difficult thing to watch unfold but clearly yes a key piece of evidence for the coroner's jury to consider and in the end three of their recommendations had to do with improving monitoring of segregation cells uh, adding more staff bigger screens um, finding a way to make sure that they're monitored 24 hours a day Um, those were three of the recommendations so clearly that, that that to me that all relates to that video. So when I saw that video, I decided that it was an important thing for for people to see. You know, when we go to these things, when we go to court, when we go to an inquest, you know, we are representatives, I feel, of the public. I mean, these are public processes and not all members of the public can be there to see them. We can tell them about the evidence, but video is very powerful. Um and it may show people things that they never considered before. It may help them to understand why the jury made the recommendations they
0: did. Because in, ca- in British Columbia, neither in, in court nor in uh, coroner's inquest, it's not like we can have cameras in there for them to see the demeanor of the jury or what the arguments are from the lawyers. It's a really tough thing for us to try to convey that after. So when we do, on the rare occasion, we do have video uh, to, to express what this whole thing is about. That's, that's pretty powerful stuff
2: oh absolutely and and it is it is our role to be able to express that as clearly and accurately as we can to the public so they have understandings of these processes that are that are public and are you know we there's that saying that in order for justice to be justice has to be seen to be done and so you know, it's it, we want to um, help with that open court process and that transparency by letting people know what's going on. So one of the rights we have is if there's something that's shown publicly in, in a courtroom or in this case in an inquest, we are able to make an application for it to be released so that we can incorporate it into a story to help further that understanding of that process. So that's what I did in this case. Uh, that very first day, I made an application um, to access that exhibit. It was formally entered as an exhibit. And uh, the process from that point on, um, I had never actually made an application at a coroner's inquest before, although I've done it in court. Uh, and it's always a little bit different, the experience. You never quite know how it's going to unfold because in the end, it is up to the discretion of the judge or coroner as to what will end up happening um but in this case uh it did take a a a few days um to to end up getting the video
0: the timing was not ideal because the inquest was over by the time you had access to it and it sounds like that was by design uh, based on them trying to keep you from getting the video well i when i made that application
2: uh it was a few days before, I think I made it on the Monday, and then on the probably on the Wednesday or Thursday, I was asked to submit a, a, a further um, request in writing to the coroner service, which I did. I sent them an email explaining that I wanted this publicly presented piece of evidence, that I felt it was important uh, uh, in the public interest to the story, that it could help people understand how, what came out of this inquest. Uh, at that point, I was also asked to present my my request, my position formally uh, at the inquest. This ended up happening, I believe, on the Thursday or Friday of that week, and at that point, The jury was already in deliberations. So time was really of the essence. I mean, there is a, there is an urgency that we feel to be able to deliver news to people in a timely fashion. I mean, we, we, we don't want to be telling people days after something happened that it happened. That's not really serving the public, uh, the way we want to. So when I made that formal, uh, presentation to the coroner, uh, and I did it by phone, I was on another shift so I couldn't appear in person, Uh, I I expressed that timeliness was of the essence as well. It was not just about having access to this publicly presented piece of evidence, it was that we needed it uh, in order to be able to tell the story of whatever the jury perhaps would end up deciding, what cause of death would be, what the recommendations potentially would be, that that would help us. Uh, The coroner seemed to understand that, but what we ended up running into was the uh, Council for Corrections, which um, uh, was represented there at the inquest and was able to ask questions of the witnesses, decided to ask for an adjournment of a week, saying that um, they were not in favor of the release of the video uh, and they needed time to gather information to explain their position properly as to why... They had concerns about it being released. And at the time, they only said something uh, vague
0: about uh, security reasons, safety and security reasons. Presumably for the layout of the cell, or what was your impression of, of that justification?
2: It was very vague, so I wasn't sure what to make of it. Uh, I, I didn't really understand why something that had been entered as evidence, uh, publicly presented, shown to the jury, shown to the gallery, you know, and shown in an unedited form. I mean, there was nothing about it that was, you know, blurred or altered. It was just an excerpt from some segregation cell video. Uh, I, I really didn't understand what the possible reasons would be. So the coroner ended up sort of finding a compromise between the two of us. I was asking for timeliness. She was asking a, a counsel for corrections, I was asking for a week, so he ended up reducing it to a few days. So saying that we would re-adjourn the following week on a Tuesday. Well, what ended up happening, of course, was that the jury came back, I think it might have been on the, on the Friday, with their recommendations and their cause of death. Uh, and so that had happened. We reported on that when it happened, but the process for getting this video was still ongoing. And, um, you know, that was what I had been concerned about initially, but... You know, I was also determined that I felt that this piece of evidence was important enough that we should continue to pursue it. Um, I discussed it with uh, people at our station. They agreed that we should continue to pursue it. And so we saw it through to the Tuesday. And uh, at that point, we did have the video released to us. Corrections actually ended up withdrawing their opposition or drawing their position one way or the other on the release of the video, which in essence leads it up to the corner. And we only had one caveat, which is that we agreed that we would blur the faces of two corrections officers shown briefly in the video who did not testify at the inquest. So, and I mean, that was minor enough. Um, but in the end, you know, it just seemed that after all that, I, I still feel like the, the timing of this issue is something that really needs more explanation, uh, exploration, especially within the justice system and, and in the uh, courts and the, even guess the coroner system, because we still ended up doing a story, and the video was a powerful addition to that story that helped people, I hope, better understand why there were concerns around this, um, why there was an inquest held, And why the jury ended up making the recommendations they did. But I I also think that it would have been such a great addition to the story when the jury actually came back. I mean, that's that's the time to do the story. And I mean, we still did it. And I'm glad we did, um, because I think it, it raises some important questions and it sheds a little light on a process that otherwise people might not get to see.
0: Well, and it certainly had less of an impact. I mean, your story explaining the the findings of this coroner's inquest was great, but it would have had I think a lot more impact on the public had it been hand in glove with that video because people, there's so much news happening every day and for people to be able to absorb and connect with the story, I think it is important for us to try to have as many elements as possible especially in a case that someone was able to access that quantity of drugs while in custody. That, to me, is one of the most alarming aspects of this case, and that still hasn't really been answered despite this inquest.
2: This is our publicly funded provincial corrections institution. This is a highly secure um, uh, video monitored segregation cell. And so when you think about all of that, the fact that someone was able to not only go into medical distress for a period of time in that cell, uh, or for at least 10 minutes or so without initial intervention, that they could also have consumed a large enough amount of drugs to cause that kind of distress in that same cell. You know, certainly there are there are some questions there, raises some obvious questions. How did this happen? Um, how could they possibly look at ways of preventing something like this from happening again? Which is what a coroner's inquest. Uh, often sets out to do. They they, they don't look to assign blame. Um, they they just are a fact finding process, and they can make recommendations um, for things that they think should be you know changed or improved in in, in the spirit of prevention. And in the end, unfortunately, uh, Corrections also did not agree to an interview for the story that we ultimately did. Uh, we requested. Word from corrections, from the public safety minister, and from the union representing corrections officers, and none of them decided to speak to us about this story. Although we did get a lengthy statement from corrections, which uh, indicated that they've installed body scanners now at North Fraser and I think four other facilities, and they're coming to six other facilities by the end of this year. And um, that they're also doing a review of segregation, uh, ongoing review. I don't think it was sparked necessarily by this case, among other things. have publicly presented evidence that uh, is so powerful and gives you a window into something that you wouldn't ordinarily see, and something that was important enough in this case for the jury to see, for them to, you know, consider this case properly. You know, I, I, I guess I can't speak to how how critical something that would be to marry that along with the information from the inquest. And we did do it ultimately, but again, uh, it was a few days later than I would have hoped.
0: Coming back to Ethan now, the, the video of this man uh, in his uh, final moments in this uh, jail cell it's really sad to see. It raises a lot of questions. How did he access the drugs in this case? And I think that you can only really connect with that video when you actually see it. It's 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 disturbing and compelling at the same time.
1: Yeah, and video like that is frequently controversial and our viewers sometimes do write and they'll write me and they'll say why do you have to show it whether it's animal abuse uh, or somebody in prison not receiving medical care when they obviously need it they'll say why do you need to show us this video isn't that sensationalism isn't it exploitive isn't it gratuitous and I will answer um, truthfully no that's not why we're showing it it's because the images are essential to explaining what happened. A picture tell, <laughs> a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Well, if we just wrote a story about this fellow in his, in his jail cell, writhing around in full view of a camera that's supposed to be being monitored and receiving no help for 10 minutes, and not until his, his fellow inmate presses a button to call for help. If we just explain that, I don't think it would have the important impact as showing it and we see time and time again that it's not until these images are shown that change happens because an emotional reaction can sometimes spur authorities to taking action. You have to humanize a story sometimes and again it it, it can sometimes make us look like we're being gratuitous or we're exploiting something tragic. And that really is not our intention. We're trying to humanize something that may not resonate with people unless they actually see it. You need to see those 10 minutes tick away. And you need to see how obvious it is that this person is in distress. You can't just say they were obviously in distress with the same impact as actually showing him smashing into the bunk uh, twice walking into walls, his arms flailing around. And at that point, you have to say, well, if there was somebody monitoring that television screen and that camera, how could they not have wondered what was going on? How could that not have caught their attention? The only explanation or explanations would be, in my opinion, nobody was watching or nobody was paying attention or somebody wasn't properly trained and that's possibly why the corrections officials fought very hard against maria uh, when we applied to get that video released why else would they fight against it it makes people look bad but that's our job is when people screw up in our institutions uh, we need to put that on the news because that's the only way things are going to get better.
0: And I think the flip side to the argument that we're sensationalizing is other people are going to say by not showing that video and trying to let the public know the reality that we're whitewashing and that we're sanitizing and that we're protecting people who may or may not have been doing their jobs properly. So I think it's, you know my inclination is always let's show people what's going on so that they know and that we can't look like you know we're trying to hide the truth or something i I think it's important that we do shine a light on that
1: the canadian association of broadcasters has something called a violence code and i encourage people to google it you can read about um, some of the standards that we set as journalists for these types of situations and the violence code says specifically that we shall not sanitize the reality of the human condition that we will, and now I'm paraphrasing, report the news even when images might be uncomfortable and content might be disturbing. We do not want to sanitize. We want to report the truth as clearly as we possibly can and then let the public decide um, whether or not change is necessary. And that's how a democracy works. That's, That's the role of the media in a democracy, is to shine a light into dark corners, to expose when things go wrong that aren't supposed to go wrong. People aren't supposed to die in prison when it takes them 10 minutes to go into respiratory or cardiac arrest in front of what is supposed to be a camera that is being monitored. That's just not supposed to happen. And who is going to do anything about it unless the public sees that happening and starts asking uncomfortable questions? And so that's our role. And that's how a free press works. That's what democracy is. And that's why I think our jobs are so important.
0: And part of our job now is fighting increasingly more and more layers of people trying to keep us from getting not just this information, but other information as well. Increasingly, we're getting emailed statements as opposed to being able to access ministers or decision makers. And so I guess my question to you, just to wrap this up, is what direction do you see us going in and how hard is this fight going to get, considering how hard it already is and how every day it feels like another institution is making it harder for us to get information, not just, we're not talking compelling video, but even information. Where where do you see this going?
1: I'm worried. I'm very worried. Pew Research in the United States says that communications professionals, public relations people, spin doctors now outnumber journalists five to one. Uh, I'm pretty sure the numbers are similar here in Canada. We are outnumbered. We're outgunned. It costs money to fight things in court when we try to get access to exhibits. We have to hire lawyers. That Eats up a budget quickly. Think about um, what you've heard about budgets shrinking in the media as advertising revenue goes down. So, as our revenue picture uh, declines, as the number of journalists compared to people whose job it is to spin journalists uh, becomes increasingly alarming, I worry very much. And so, that's why we need to make sure that the journalists who do remain in this industry are as aggressive and well-schooled on these issues as possible. And then, hopefully, the public will support us. So I hope people listening will subscribe to um, good journalism and sometimes consider paying money to join a subscription service and support this kind of work. Because You know, as the Washington Post says, democracy dies in darkness, and it's our job to shine a light in places uh, that people don't want us to shine lights. But I am worried because the numbers don't look good. We're definitely outgunned, so we just have to fight it one battle at a time.
0: Good thing we're stubborn. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Thank you so much, Penny. Appreciate it. And thank you for joining us on BTS with CTV. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover on a future podcast? Email me, bts at ctv.ca. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe for more insights, tidbits, and the stories behind the stories. I'm Penny Dafos.